Welcome to another episode of How the Art World Works. You can catch up on any episodes you may have missed or view the supplemental material at our website, www.artworldpodcast.com. And while you're there, please consider donating to our Patreon page. For as little as a dollar, you can help us offset the costs of research and production of this podcast and allow us the flexibility to make more episodes. Turns out producing stuff yourself is pretty expensive. Huh. Join a community of other art world amigos and check out our exclusive bonus content with our guest this week. And finally, if you like what we do, please help us get the word out by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this podcast however you can. Thank you. This week's guest is multi-talented badass and mom-to-be Audrey Chan, who was graciously welcomed at the GIST headquarters in Los Angeles, California. So it's just really cool to kind of circle around, you know, after all these years. Yeah, I'm an artist. I'm originally from the Chicago suburbs. That's where I grew up, and which Chicago suburb? Oak Park, Illinois. Okay, some and people will know where that is. Right, I have been based in LA since 2005. There was like two years, important years career-wise, like that I was um, away, like in New York and France. But we can get to that later. Mm-hmm. But LA is definitely like where I'm putting down roots and where I like see my life <laughs> for, mm-hmm. from this point forward it's just such okay but which side of LA I I'm mean if we're gonna <laughs> if we're gonna split Dang, Chicago all right. like okay well I'm currently on the west side yeah <laughs> I'm sure people have feelings <laughs> I go back and forth between the east and west a lot that's so. okay I commute from over there to here yeah so <laughs> my practice keeps evolving um I think my bread and butter before grad school was painting and drawing and I stopped cold turkey when I went to CalArts. I think I just wanted to be a sponge mm-hmm. to what CalArts had to offer. And a lot of people approach grad school differently. But it was just a lot of new ideas and just new ways of being an artist and thinking about making work. And so I did a lot more performance, video, feminist organizing while I was there. And then only in the past couple of years have I transitioned back to doing painting and drawing and drawing I'm now doing on a more monumental scale, which has been really exciting. Like literally on a monument? Um, 14 foot tall (laughs) stuff, but I make it in my apartment studio. So I'm trying to make both things work. And then I would say between 2007 and 2016, I had a career in museum education in New York and LA. That was my day job for a really long time and it allowed me to dive into my passion for like history and art history and talking to people and teaching and research and it I think that has actually subliminally informed my my practice over time because it's it's interesting to go from CalArts to talking about antiquity (laughs) and whatnot and just having to make that mental leap on a daily basis because it was it was kind of like living a double life in a way oh yeah (laughs) I think I I mean people 
ask me what kind of work I make and only now can I yes I actually am a painter but for the <laughs> longest time I was like oh, I do feminist organizing I do this I do that and so why do you call yourself a painter why identify by the medium instead of the message I think it depends on who's asking mm -hmm. some people is, have an answer in mind that they want when they ask you <laughs> And so if I'm talking to someone who's more familiar with art practices in the plural, we can kind of go into that. But my work is primarily informed by politics, history, identity, and it, it takes a lot of different forms. And I like constantly learning new things. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to limit myself, per se. So. Well, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people always ask me when they find out you're an artist, the first thing they say is, are you a painter? Mm -hmm, exactly. And you can actually now just say, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm just, ah, finally. Like, okay, we oh, can. No. <laughs> I'm not a painter, but let's actually talk about all these other things right, that people right. don't really. Yeah, exactly. You can say yes if you want or no if uh, you don't want. I can want. say painter sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I do painting, yes. yes. I, I include that in my practice. I use paint, and it may involve a canvas, but don't hold your breath. You've been out for a little while now, and maybe you could sort of talk about how you got started and things that happened for you and how you made things happen. Yeah, so I didn't um, take much time between undergrad and grad school, and so I wasn't out in the art world and cutting my teeth in a professional sense in any way. And so I was really green when I went into grad school and people were like, you've never heard of Mike Kelly? Dear God, how could you call yourself a contemporary artist? <laughs> and I was just the like, test. I was just like, oh, okay, I see the rules of this club, <laughs> LA art world club thing. And I think, I feel like I don't have a really rigid idea of what the art world meant and having like rigid boundaries and mm -hmm. whatnot and so I just I think after a lot of decisions I've made are like practical as much as mm -hmm. esoteric and so after grad school I moved to New York and I needed a job <laughs> and so I worked for a few months like at a bookstore and whatnot and then I saw an opening at the new museum of contemporary art that was that hadn't yet moved into its space on the Bowery. Mm -hmm. They were still in a transitional space in Chelsea, but um, they were looking for an assistant for their education department. And Anji Ju had just um, signed on there as their right. um, head of education and um, public programs. So I applied because we had worked together at Kellard. She was aware of my like organizing work. So with other grad students, I co-organized Exquisite Acts and Everyday Rebellions, which happened to coincide with the 2007 WAC Art and the Feminist Revolution exhibition. And so that was a really amazing experience because it was just a ton of, <laughs> it was like a day to night kind of commitment for about a year. And so my main piece of it was putting together a day of panels uh, to talk about contemporary feminism in the art context. And I think, I remember at the time, Christine Wertheim, who's a critical studies faculty, encouraged us organizers, the students, to moderate the panels. And we thought that was the strangest, most <laughs> bizarre idea because we're like, we're not the experts. 
But it also meant that our questions were came from a really honest place right. of, of learning as opposed to someone who, okay, I, I know all the players and I'm just shepherding this conversation. Right. It was a very raw. And, uh, well, it also happened for, I mean, there were a lot of students involved, so I think it was really smart. Yeah. At some level, if you're gonna, if you're asking from the place of which most people are originating, then it makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a fantastic event. I'm really glad that you thought so. I mean, we were encouraged not to have it at Kellarts because it was assumed that no one from the LA art world <laughs> would want to drive right. up to Valencia on a weekend morning, and it was like a packed house. No, so, absolutely. So I, yeah. I think there have been moments when I've experienced naysaying, and just okay. needing to stick to your guns and just see how it plays out because uh, if you just follow the naysayers you'll just kind of you'll end up at, you'll, you'll end just kind of go land. into the grooves that have already been dug out right. you know so that's not as interesting um but anyway on the basis of that um i uh Angie hired me and i was worked there for a few months during their transition to the bowery and it was just i was thrown in a deep end <laughs> <laughs> i mean i barely knew anything about the LA art world, much less the New York art world. And then I'm kind of was just in it at a really um, intense institutional level. And it was just so interesting to see how an operation like that worked. Yeah. And it also forced me to kind of step outside my head as an artist to be in a kind of more administrative role in that space. But it really opened the door for me to be in museum education and Mm -hmm. then shortly thereafter I was an assistant in the education department at MoMA and it was you know work cultures even within museums the two spaces were so different the new museum was very fast-paced everyone was doing six jobs (laughs) Uh at once MoMA was much more formal and calm and um, delegated Mm -hmm. is this still New York yeah this is still New York and um, so I was supporting the gallery lecture program, helping them schedule things, you know, their lunchtime talks. And so I got really intrigued about, oh, what's this museum interpretation thing? Uh, Because it was all these art historians who had gotten their PhDs and were taking the public around to talk about work. And so that was really great. I met Pablo Helguera there, Mm -hmm. and he's been a huge influence on me just in terms of someone who embodies this hybrid artist mode and I don't know I feel like he has more hours in the day than most people (laughs) by like how much he accomplishes yeah but I mean he won a Guggenheim for the school of pan-american unrest he's fully committed as uh adult programs uh, programmer curator Mm -hmm. in the context of MoMA and fostering discourse at a really high level and a really accessible level and He's a dad. <laughs> He's also a maker of objects and 2D artwork and also publishes books satirizing the art world. <laughs> so <laughs> I check in with him now and then because his career was really inspiring to me. Quick billing department note, amigos. This week's sponsor is Getting Your Shit Together, a dynamic and important resource for contemporary artists of all kinds. Check out the book, opportunities, articles, advice, software, and more. That's G-Y-S-T-I-N-K. And use code FATBABY for free shipping. Again, that's Just Inc. promo code FATBABY. It'll make sense in a minute. 
Okay, back to the show. This video project called Chinatown Abecedario that would be these animated vignettes that would deconstruct all these myths and narratives around LA's Chinatown. And I think the show was postponed. I didn't hear back for a really long time. I think it was maybe a year, a year and a half later that they were like, oh, so... You that get was the <laughs> email, you're like, fuck, what is this thing again? Yeah. Do I apply to this? Yeah, and so originally, <sighs> originally they had a year timeline of from the time you find out you're in it or not to when the exhibition happens mm-hmm. but then when they finally got back to us it was like six months <laughs> and I had proposed this really intense animation project so I was like oh, oh, okay uh, let's do this <laughs> we have a couple extra months <laughs> what's good is that I was part-time at teaching at that time so I was able to just crank out this piece but it got me back into drawing Mm. which was so important and I had done political editorial cartoons in in college and I just plugged back into that headspace that was part illustration part editorial editorially driven uh I could put my sense of humor in it and I think it was a really big deal to have a space to deal with Chinese American and like Asian American issues that was already in the mode that I didn't know I could make work in, which was more broadly historical, humorous, satirical, you know, ironic, and um, not purely driven by pathos and kind of mourning and loss that I think I had made work in that space and was uncomfortable in some ways, I didn't know how much of me there was uh, in that in that voice. And so just having this opportunity just came really naturally. And mm-hmm. I assume that work had to be like a mind-bending, <laughs> mind-exploding stress right. ball of an experience to be worthwhile. The France experience was really stressful. <laughs> Being told that like... You are causing a school to get sued by right. the president of France. It was kind of stressful for me. I was just like, oh, wow. It really opened my mind in a way that, like, I honestly, I hadn't been able to deal with that much at CalArts because uh, I just did I think I, I like, sought out feminist art in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because it's where I felt I could most locate work that, like, dealt with narrative and identity and experience, Mm -hmm. which is what I really wanted to do. And I knew at the time that it was, I'd say like 90, (laughs) 95% of the artists we were looking at were white women. And I think I just took that for granted. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to work with what I've got. Right. And I'm still really inspired by that work. But I think at a certain point you need to get closer and closer to what speaks to you. And um, I just wasn't exposed to enough Asian American artists. It's the more marginalized work is or people are Mm -hmm. within the art world, the harder it is to find them. That's true. And even within CalArts, a feminist narrative was more buried than other places, even though the the feminist art program was based there. So I think I just got used to this idea that if I need to be like an archaeologist finding mm-hmm. the work that I care about because it's not going to always be presented to me. That excavation just being an inherent part of 
being an artist. It's not just the work you make, but having to find and sometimes really, really dig and over several years for the past work that can inform you and that you can locate yourself. In your I think practicing. that's one of the jobs of the artists that people don't always articulate so much, but you, you know, when you're in school, you have a dialogue that is driven by who's ever around. When you get out, you have the opportunity to do all kinds of things. And I think what's great about that show is that pushed you into a place. So the context was already there. Yeah. And you could sort of insert your work and be a part of a dialogue. And I think that's something that every artist should probably look for. Mm-hmm. or create if you can't find it. So again, if the art world doesn't exist that you want, you have to make it or you have to find it. Yeah, and Steve Wong was kind of carving out a space for uh, younger contemporary artists within the site of like an immigration museum. Right. And how cool is that? <laughs> yeah. I would say if shonen commercial gallery a very tiny sprinkling (laughs) of Mm -hmm. times and most of the exhibitions i've been in have been affiliated with like schools or nonprofit spaces or spaces like the chinese american museum that are cultural institutions yeah so i think sometimes when people think of the art world capital a w Mm -hmm. uh they're really limiting themselves to thinking about the commercial gallery world. And if your work fits there, great. If it doesn't, that's not a judgment on your work. You know, like sometimes uh, work like makes sense in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like one of the great mysteries to me right now in my practice, how to understand the commercial gallery world. Cause I'm just, will that change like how I make the work? Uh, the kinds of work I make, like, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, a lot of my stuff has been really like project and research driven for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it depends on, so the commercial gallery is also far and wide. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, you really can't participate unless you sell work for the most part. Mm -hmm. So on some level, it does change a lot of artists work being aware of it and how you operate. It's just another tool or an art supply in the things that are available to artists. So your work makes sense in those cultural institutions. It'll be interesting to see whether it flies in a commercial way, you know, or if you even end up wanting to do that or something like that. Right. You know, Um, because I mean, there is like a whole system of work needing to be collectible in order to be collected, you know? Well, you have to be able to buy it, and then you have to be able to, you know, I mean, all those things Mm -hmm. determine what you make. So, again, it will change your work Mm -hmm. for the most part. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that it's bad. Yeah. Right? So I think just being really smart about it is the best way to go about it. Yeah. And to know as much as possible before you get into it. Yeah. And to kind of hopscotch where I'm at, like, at this Mm -hmm. present moment, um, another project that was happening around that time was Alana and I as Chan and man, like wanted mm-hmm. to host our own like retrospective. <laughs> right. <laughs> so no, no, no. Like has Chan and man, like we oh, had no, worked yeah. together for like seven years. And we're like, yeah. Oh, we got the seven year itch. Yeah. And I had been doing all this research on Pacific standard time. That was at what point do you look back and 
I was like, do we want to wait till we're like 75? And people are like, oh, shoot, we need to show them before they die. Because that was <laughs> that was actually kind of impetus for what led to Pacific, the first iteration of Pacific Standard Time. Like this generation of artists that was underrecognized in the post-war period hadn't had hadn't been shown in that in that platform. And so I was like, Alana, let's look back at our seven <laughs> years. Or we decided that together. And um, we ended up doing this really funny painting that was informed a lot by Rita Kahlo and allegorical still life. And we, it was a very strange piece where we just put all these props from our like past recent work <laughs> and and um it was really fun and yeah we had worked on a project called like myths of rape before that revisited leslie labowitz stars and suzanne lacy's project suzanne um created like the three weeks in may in mm-hmm. 1977 to use art and activism to look at the rape and sexual abuse especially in the context of los angeles and so Leslie and Suzanne invited us to restage it in a way. And that project is still actually having iterations in China even a few years ago. Uh, we we're part of an exhibition. So that has had iterations. It's mm-hmm. going to be in a show organized by Free Waves in Anne Bray at Cypress College called Dismiss in mm-hmm. next week. Yeah. Hey, um, we know her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Bray, like goddess of... Amazing Video. art worlds plural, yeah, uh, in LA. And so, anyway, so we did that show at Elephant Art Space that's mm-hmm. organized by really great colleagues, many of whom I went to Kell Arts with in um, Glassell Park. So, sometimes you just put together shows and and see what happens. And um, I think after that, we were in Ilana and I were invited to show at the Ben Maltz Gallery at Otis College of Art and Design. and it was so interesting going into that gallery for a visit for the first time because it's like an airplane hangar. <laughs> and me and Alana were just, what? <laughs> Another one of those what experiences. Yeah. Like, okay, it's one thing to be invited and then to like actually hold a physical space of that cavernous scale was daunting. And so that totally affected the work that we made for that show. Um and so we each had like a solo project and then the third artist was Shannon Mann. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was this really amazing opportunity to work on these like parallel uh, practices together. Mm-hmm. And it was a very intense process to like get that work made. Um, and so Alana developed work around her like series around listening. There were like sculptures, video and photo the Chan and Man installed expanded upon that funny painting we did. And we created an installation that was called like Chan's Manny's Theater. That was their play on Man's Chinese <laughs> Theater. And that was functioned like a screening room for that video. And then I fell in love with this wall that was like under a skylight. And I just, for whatever reason, I was, I just want to fill this wall. I... I think I had like just started working full time at the Getty Villa. And so I was like, oh crap. The Chan and Man install on its own was really laborious. It took like a lot of man hours to get that video made and to like build the installation. But how many Chan hours? Uh. Lots of Chan <laughs> and Man hours. Yes, 
much and power. Well, that was the first. <laughs> that was a really big space for you. Oh yeah. Comparatively to what you had done previously, oh, yeah. so I, like, yeah. Don't even have a studio. <laughs> I know. I'm like, working on my laptop. I was just like, I want to do something like on the scale of like a mural or a billboard, but I also wanted the freedom to not be beholden to like executing it like directly on the wall. And so I ended up developing a process of taking like my hand-drawn work that I was doing at like a kind of sketchbook scale and uh, maximizing it in like using Adobe Illustrator, vector-based mm-hmm. art. You can scale it, you know, miles long or whatever. And it still like has true resolution. And so I was just trying to like make that whole thing work for the kinds of things I wanted to put up. And I made this piece that was really, really emotional to work on. It was kind of based on my relationship with my paternal grandmother. And she was experiencing dementia at the time. And she helped to raise me. And so, like, even though we didn't speak the same dialect of Chinese, our emotional bond was really intense. And my dad has been a kind of translator of, like, the family narrative Uh, from communist China to like Chicago for me like since I was little and so I was just I wanted to use this opportunity to like honor her but also be true to like the way I experienced our relationship and so oh it was so hard (laughs) to like put that into images right and to make drawings that it's one thing to make a political cartoon and another thing to be like how can this stand for like one of the most important people in my life and to communicate that in some way? Uh, so I ended up making this allegorical, very nonlinear scene that could be read from like left to right or right to left because a lot of like Chinese art is read from right to left and just kind of assimilating a lot of things I've always wanted to put into my work but hadn't really known how to until that point. And so I think like if I had, if I knew it was going to be like a frame, like 18 by 24 work, it would have been totally different. But I was, I need this to be an incredibly immersive piece. And so it ended up being like 14 by 33 feet. And I had it produced as a vinyl banner that could like be hung. It's currently like folded up in my closet at home. (laughs) Um, We're all good artwork resides. Yeah. (laughs) So but that was an important transition for yeah, you, it, it sounds like, huge. in terms of your work, because Literally. you were, com- were com- kind of completely rethinking mm-hmm. the way that you were operating and you challenged yourself to do something that, you know, which I think is interesting because that's how we get from one space to another. Yeah. And Meg Linton was a curator and she really trusted us. And that was huge. I love the question mark. Like, why would she trust yeah. us? <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, oh. it worked out, but that's terrible. Why would you do that? Sometimes it's like, it's kind oh, of a funny notion. It's like, take what? like a leap of faith. And she, she really wanted us to stretch our wings and mm-hmm. try something that we hadn't done before, which is huge. Yeah. It's, and it's 14 yeah. by 33 huge. Yeah. So... I was like, I've never made something this big. I don't know when I will get to again because most galleries aren't even this big. That was really interesting because I hadn't tested out that work in a critical context before. And at CalArts, you really got into this mode of discursive kind of processing of work. 
whether it was with one person or with class. And I think I just really fed off of that kind of energy Mm -hmm. and work coming out of like rehashing and conversations and research. This piece I was making at Otis was so rooted in like my being from before I ever knew I was an artist, like the kinds of things I was trying to put into the piece. So it was like really confusing in a way, even once it was up because people like had no basis for understanding like what the piece Mm. was about because it kind of came out of nowhere right um i hadn't it was not like a series led up to that and also quite personal comparatively yeah and the images were legible but also illegible Mm -hmm. in the sense that people couldn't like locate themselves in it or like it's weird sometimes when really critical (laughs) communities will I thought people would kind of spend more time and interpret it themselves because I'd been in the space of museum interpretation where people just go up to something they've never seen before and need to start like unpacking it. Right. And so I assume that that kind of thing would happen with the piece. But huh, like, your Getty you, brain. Can you? Like, <laughs> yeah. People say like, "Oh, can you tell me what this is about?" I don't get it. And I was like, "Come on, people! Like, even uh. like the general public can like get into this." Kind of way of interpreting like, let's look for work. context clues. Yeah. Can you see any context clues in yeah. this piece? It's like there's people, there's a place, there's yeah. words, yeah. you know, and it just uh, made me realize what sometimes like what you expect out of people looking at work can be really different from how people mm-hmm. behave and that can actually change over time. And it took me a few years to really accept that piece because I felt like, oh, it's never finished. I don't know if it properly represented it was it's impossible for me to make a piece that completely represents like that relationship. Yeah. And so the open endedness, the emotional open endedness of it was really different for me. I mentioned the Chinatown thing, the the Otis exhibition, because I feel like they helped inform um, me later on when I was. I was on, I had applied another open call thing Mm -hmm. to be on a pre-qualified list of artists for upcoming Metro art projects and context. What year is this? That was 2014. So I had just, the Otis show was like 2013. I think in 2014, they put out this call. It was a nationwide call for people to submit work to be shortlisted for projects that were coming up because Metro is like constantly expanding right now. And they have an amazing contemporary art commissioning program. I was really happy to get on it. I think it was 2015 that I was, I got a call, another one of these calls from out of the blue that's like, hey, so you're a finalist for the station that's (laughs) going to be constructed at like First and Central. And uh, it was Letitia Ivins who called me Mm -hmm. um, and... She was describing it. She was like, oh, there are these panels about like 12 by 13 feet. There will be 14 of them or so. And I'm like, oh, cool. So I'm going to apply to like do one of the panels. She's like, no, all of them. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh uh uh I was just like probably crickets (laughs) from my end. Are you fucking with me? Yeah. I'm not quite sure. (laughs) So I was just like, wait, that's like cathedral scale, (laughs) you know? I like had a few months to assemble a proposal and is located in historical Tokyo Mm -hmm. and just even from my secondhand experience in little Tokyo and like my experience researching Chinatown this city is 
complex. Yes. And to the fact that a station was even built there, I was certain was already very complex because it gentrified and changed a whole existing historic neighborhood. Yeah, and that's a huge concern. And it the, the gentrification of downtown is very rapid Mm -hmm. and um little tokyo as a community has experienced so many waves of it the fact that like they're the physical footprint of the neighborhood has kept shrinking yeah over time and like the way people experience it has changed over time and so i was just this is a really big deal and i can't just Mm -hmm. make something up and impose it on the space uh so much of my work was based in in research and trying to understand a subject while and before putting images to it or turning it into something that could be interpreted visually. So uh, I think right away I I reached out to community activists to to inform um, Mm -hmm. the, the work. And I think going back to my upbringing in Chicago, in schools and post offices in my town, there were Works Progress Administration, mm-hmm. federal art, art program murals that were still intact, intact, um, needing some restoration. But they made a really big impact on me because I knew that they were these kind of like images of Americana and like this kind of idealized imagery of what America stood for. And it was all like Caucasian farmers mm-hmm. and like kneeling Native Americans and like people of color toiling in the background Mm -hmm. but there weren't any asian americans and i just as i was learning more about like japanese internment um which affected like all japanese american families on the west coast i was like wait how are these how is that program so time-wise so close to internment it's idealized as this pinnacle government public works program immediately Mm -hmm. followed by japanese internment same president, yeah. same administration. And I'm just like trying to reconcile that. I'm like, you know what? I just wanted to do a kind of revisionist take on like, okay, if we're going to really think about like what America looks like, let's rewrite this narrative. And I think all throughout my training as an artist and scholar, just the importance of like iconography, symbolic images and representational images has really like been an important place where I locate what I want to do as an artist. Cause I don't take it for granted that the images that we associate with love is like fat baby, you know, like how <laughs> arbitrary is that? You know? <laughs> so it's a very specific baby. He doesn't have kneecaps yet. So we know, know. he's not two or older. But it's like whether you're Western or, <laughs> or not Western European, like you're obliged to acknowledge this, fat baby yeah with a bone arrow you know like okay like i just fat baby (laughs) and also with the otis piece i realized actually that kind of strangeness of encountering a new a new image that you don't know how to like locate meaning in Mm -hmm. can actually be really productive because it forces you out of a certain box of interpretation and it's not just reshuffling like existing norms i was like okay well i'm gonna propose this piece that will like exist beyond my lifetime and probably like the next generation's lifetime. I don't know how long it would be up for, but 
in the contract that says at least 25 <laughs> <Yes>. years. <laughs> they guarantee 25 years. Um, that's still a really like, long I time. I want to make something really meaningful that can get vandalized on. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have thought a lot about time and like images that persist throughout time. So if I'm going to put something in that space, I want it to be able to be unpacked over time. Mm-hmm. It may be jarring to have these kind of images all at once when it opens, but I want it to have like layers and to imply that people should learn what these images stand for and mean and can, and the narratives that they can newly be circulated in a mainstream context and not just within existing community narratives Mm -hmm. because the station art has to speak to the concerns of the immediate community and it also serves, because it's transit, it serves like it serves everybody. people from all over the world, from different parts of town. If you're not from L.A., just for context, this station is really close to Union Station train, yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. I think it'll be like the second busiest station after Union Station. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a regional connector project. So it's like three stations connecting existing lines in the Got downtown it. historic corridor. If there's only like three little things, how come they didn't make you guys all like, I don't know, work together at a theme or something? Um, I think each artist is charged with putting together a proposal that is sensitive to the immediate community, Mm -hmm. but also representative of their body of work, too. And so we all like shared what our work was about, like once we were selected. But I think they would like for each of the artworks to be distinct each of the stations has two or three artist projects. And so for the little Tokyo station, I'm on the subway platform level. And then Claire Rojas, who's based in the Bay, is Mm -hmm. um, doing the glass panels and the enclosure of the street level station. So that's what I'm in the middle of right now. And I have um, until the end of the year to finish the work. And it's another one of those things. If I had like 10 years to work on this, I would probably still feel like it wasn't enough time. And so I just wrapping my arms around things that feel really impossible to represent and just trying. Heck yeah, <laughs> jump in. Yeah. And so as important as the images have been, have been like the conversations with uh, community leaders mm-hmm. and other folks who have been like sharing their narratives with me and like what they think is really important. So I think of this as I'm an artist, but I'm a, my process is really porous in the sense that I'm not just inventing a narrative. I need to do the research. I need to right. be humble. I need to be sensitive to how it's going to be interpreted. So many things. Yeah. 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 Well, also you're working with stakeholders. Oh yeah. You know, people that, that actually, have an investment in what you're doing and the place that you're working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That your career has had this really interesting trajectory in which you've shown up, you know, opportunities have come mm-hmm. out and you've found them and you have gone after them. You know, you're, you started out with these kind of smaller projects and, and right now you have a, a Metro project, which is huge. Yeah. Really like huge. This was a someday dream. <laughs> yeah like to do a and you're still fairly young. and it's happening now yeah and i'm just like okay i gotta do this how right excited now. <laughs> are you to take your parents to like your stop and be like ah, yeah it's ah, not gonna ah, be PhD till, like, this 2021 that the station's <laughs> open and so yeah. i've just had to kind of like suspend any sense of like immediate gratification wait or but anything. do they know oh yeah they know oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are you keeping this secret till 2021? Be like, yeah, let's take a ride. My, my, (laughs) it was like a few months between proposing 
the piece of the panel right. and like finding out maybe mm-hmm. happy year. And in the meantime, my parents were like traveling in Asia, and my mom was like, I prayed at every temple. Oh, <laughs> I made offerings to the gods. <laughs> well, no How wonder. do I get on this mom list? She's yeah. powerful. Yeah. No wonder you got it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, like, wow, every temple. That's a good yeah. strategy. Okay, so if you're an artist out there and you got a really cool mom, if you want to borrow Audrey's mom, she's yeah. available to rent. Yeah, I don't think she's offered that, but um, no, it, I'm sure I'm that sure she's it saving helps. it. She all could for be you. mom by the hour. I think she would dig that. <laughs> but I mentioned the well, the piece is called Willpower Allegory, like playing off the WPA acronym. Mm. And it's like a really like multicultural narrative located in Little Tokyo in the Arts District mm-hmm. as the kind of home base. Yeah, I mentioned the Otis Project because I think that was I'm using the process I developed to do that piece because they're both about 13, 14 right. feet high. And then I feel like the Chinatown piece taught me how to un- represent and unpack the layered narratives of like ethnic enclaves in LA hybridity that can happen like when you fictionalize it in a way yeah it's I couldn't have known when I made those pieces that I'd be doing this now but I'm just trying to like locate this project in like my practice Mm -hmm. in general so that I can like ground it in something it's not going to be grounded till it's real and you're buying the ticket. I know. And it's I'm not... like pregnant right now. And like, <laughs> I'm going to bring like so my... you're working on two major projects. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to bring like my toddler to see it. Like when it opens, I'm just like, what is even going to happen in life between now and 2021? Absolutely. I hope we'll be in a different political administration. Um, but it's also like the context of the Trump era is like my piece is so much about like immigration and like who... Um, gets to be seen as American and who and who's got the one drop rule yeah Yeah. and that contestation over who can claim the American narrative is what my piece is about right and so just the fact that there's all this um, going on right now in politics and in American society I'm just it's informing the piece and it makes me think about like okay what images can give people strength future generations Well, I think it's interesting because you're talking about really relevant material, but the context around it is making it even more relevant. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the, you know, even though you might not have started out with a really political intent. Yeah, I think my political intent was like changes constantly. Revisiting the 1940s. Yeah. You know, and I'm just 2017 is is the time-based element in the mm -hmm. piece while I'm working on it. It's also interesting to kind of be in multiple headspaces right now i literally just need to make a lot of drawings (laughs) and there's protests there's actions um so many immediate things going on and i'm trying to like do this thing that for perpetuity reconcile those things yeah it's hard to stay humble while you're supposed to be thinking about yourself to make this thing but it's it's not about you but it's definitely about this community yeah it's really humbling actually to work on it but also i just have to get it done gotta get cracking yeah it's been it's been (laughs) cracking for like a year (laughs) gotta keep cracking it so if you had to pass on information to artists that are just graduating or working what are some things that you would say I would say, I think just thinking back to the moments that I was, do I even want to keep doing this? Is this pointless? It's so easy to compare yourself to other people Mm -hmm. and how 
other people frame success or what it consists of. And if you're constantly judging yourself, comparing to other people, you'll never be happy and you'll be miserable and you'll probably want to stop. <laughs> and so a lot of what I've had to do is just filter out kind of thinking because it's really like not productive for me. Figure out at the end of the day, like what actually gives me purpose and sometimes it's nothing to do with the capital A art world. It's just like, I want to tell stories. I'm lucky enough to have a platform, you know, and that platform can like happen in different places. Absolutely. And with different people. Yeah. Like the piece I'm doing now is I'm very much thinking about the general public as my primary audience for it and just keep a long view. Cause when I was working at the Getty, I was like, I just need to pay the rent, you yeah. know? And I, I feel like it took a lot of work to get to LA and mm -hmm. to go to Kellards and to just like try to make something happen. And I would say the years immediately following grad school are super confusing because you go from the space of hyper validation every mm -hmm. day because you're basically paying to be validated in grad school. I don't know if you would see it that way. Well, on some level, if you know, from the from the position as a student, of course, because you're getting something at the end. Yeah. Right? Your validation is this degree from this place. And I would say that that's how I felt because I had never so fully considered myself as an artist until I was there. It was always just this thing that I did that right. I kept doing. It wasn't like an identity. Um, and it was the first time that I was, oh, people think I'm an artist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is really cool. At some point, you just have to claim it. Yeah, but I think I hadn't fully. But you have now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there have been times when I've drifted and stuff. But Imagine getting commissioned for a huge project uh -huh. um, really helps that validation. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I does. mean, you got validated all along the way, mm -hmm. which kept you going. So even just someone seeing your video and going to France and d getting involved in all those things. Yeah. Everybody has a different trajectory mm -hmm. of how careers work. And I think that there's Jeffrey Valance does it. I invited him to my class and he did a really great drawing. Mm -hmm. He just walked in and he said, let me do you, draw you a, draw the art world for you. And oh, so God. he started <laughs> at the beginning. He said, this is when I graduated. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I expected my career to go from just at a slow crawl up. Mm -hmm. And just constantly just keep crawling up. Yeah. So he starts this drawing and then he's, he goes up a little. And so he was lucky enough to get a gallery when he first mm -hmm. got really? out of school, which yeah. is unheard of. And then it climbs up and he said, well, after that show, it went down. Mm -hmm. And then it went up and then it went down even further. And then it went a little farther up. And so it, this his trajectory, even as a successful artist, is yeah. this constant up-down thing in which, you know, there's really low lows and there's really great highs. Yeah. And you just, you don't know what's going to happen. And so you, you lay the groundwork, you do all the stuff that you can, you make the best work possible and you show up. Yeah. I had this really great chat with um, Charles before I taught at CalArts last semester. Mm -hmm. And I would say teaching at CalArts was like one of my biggest dreams. And so <laughs> the fact that everything is you happening You got over that year, fast, didn't you? <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Um, I would say that this year has been really overwhelming in a lot yeah. of ways um, because all these things are happening at the same time. And I'm just like... Because you're the prom queen this year. So Wee! I'm just like, all really, these wonderful things. I'm really happy to be doing this interview this year. <laughs> Two years ago, it would have been a totally different conversation. But 
I was just like, Charles, I need advice. We talked about how it's really important to differentiate your practice and your career. He's like, your practice has to be like the through line mm-hmm. that like carries you through that you always that grounds you and your career inherently will have ups and downs and yeah. ups and downs. And if you base what you think of as your practice as an artist on your career highs and lows, you'll just be in a world of pain. Absolutely. You know, and enjoy the successes when they happen, but they can be so random the quiet periods can feel really long and forever mm-hmm. until they're not. And so I think I always knew I wanted to be an artist to the end. And so I'm like, okay, however long it takes, I just need to mm-hmm. like make the conditions right to right. keep at it. Well, you're also one of those people who's always been really prepared. Okay. So you, it's like you, <laughs> sure. You know about your work. You know what you're up to. You can articulate it. If someone asks you about your work, you can talk about it. Um, I think that you're just your strategies for how you've done things by, you know, look, here's a chance. I'm going to apply. Yeah. Right. And stuff mm-hmm. happens. But if you don't do all of that stuff, mm-hmm. it makes it really difficult. And, and then, you know, people wonder, why don't I get anything? Right. Yeah. But you have to be at least a little bit organized. To sort of make stuff happen. I like learned doing feminist organizing is like you have to write your own canon and you can't just take everyone who's on the cover of art form as the art, your art gods. You know what I mean? Like you have to figure out. That lasts for five minutes anyway. Yeah. And (laughs) so many of the people's whose work I cared about have had careers highs and lows and are often like underrecognized. And for me, that doesn't diminish the importance of their work seeing people's various careers I didn't have illusions that a career needs to look a certain way for the work to be of a certain quality and importance mm-hmm. is there still a CalArts Mafia oh you know what I'm having a yard sale and I'm totally selling my CalArts Mafia book because <laughs> I'm just like I know all these stories like this was such is like, that the one I'm reading now about the, Jack the, Goldstein like, that the, she should be reading the neon green cover I'm like I remember reading this right before going and being like, oh, this is like the mythology I need to learn about this mysterious place in California. And I'm just like, you know what? I've moved on. Like, like Mm -hmm. those stories are great and they remain relevant to people for whom they remain relevant. But I'm just like, you had a different experience at CalArts that is your own and just as valid. I will let someone else learn about these this moment and i'm just like even when i was there it's like they barely mentioned the feminist art program in that book it's like at the same time (laughs) no i know so i learned to read between the lines a lot but calarts mafia i don't know there are so many mafias it's like uh there are i mean it's just a matter you know it it, i mean the calarts mafia is just a group of people who have a common experience just like any you know the yale mafia and everything else and i'm really lucky that i was there with the cohort that i was there with like so many of those artists are like still so are like my art gods, you know, like yeah. my colleagues. And I feel lucky that we were in the same place at the same time together. And so, yeah, I I think the mafia concept, I don't get a lot of energy from it. Some people really like gossip. I'm just like, it <laughs> exhausts me. Yeah. So... Yeah, sometimes Not I your feel scene. like a hermit. If somebody wants to start their career in museum work, should they join the AAM right away? I mean, it has a great listing of jobs, but 
I, I don't know. Like, I didn't, I'm the wrong person to ask because I didn't uh, seek out that path. Like, it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I feel like really weird giving advice about that. But um, just know that it's kind of like you just need to meet people. Just like so it's not required, of course. No, I didn't have but any. But yeah, you didn't do any of that experience. stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was, star- I started at an admin level. So, yeah. um, cause there are plenty of qualified people, people who, whose resumes are mm-hmm. beyond, but that doesn't always translate into a job or a job offer. Yeah. So one last thing, how would you describe your art world? Oh, really amazing down to earth people that I've, I collect <laughs> and right. hold on to that mm-hmm. I've met in a lot of different contexts. I would say a lot of the people who are my art world don't identify with the mainstream. Like they mm-hmm. don't know they're their art world. Yeah. Like they're just, oh, that's that thing that doesn't include me. Right. A lot of people I connect with feel mm-hmm. that way or need or feel the need to create other spaces and platforms because their values aren't reflected on the larger stage. So, yeah. So again, I mean, making your own art world is incredibly important, I would say, mm-hmm. it, particularly for your practice. So I think on some level when you describe it, yeah, right. It's this whole group of people who are kind of like-minded and it's sort of like a tribe on some level and you all support each other and all of that. But the sort of main art world in the sky remains limited to a lot of different people. Yeah. And I so I think you like, have to kind of make the I thing that works for you. it's not even that I want to so desperately be a part of it i'm just like yeah. uh i just try to look for the work that i really like yeah and i just go where it where it's at <laughs> you yeah, know i think that's and really smart i think learning what you like and what you don't like is <laughs> so important because sometimes you convince yourself to like things because everyone else does and that can be confusing yeah, yeah. problematic well yeah because <laughs> sometimes you like things out of obligation or like oh everyone else Right, so yeah. It's like the coolest right. thing ever. But I think it's important to just have really, really personal reasons for caring about things mm-hmm. and to see those through to the end. Thanks again to our guest, Audrey Chan. You can catch her work at AudreyChan.net. Our music is brought to us by Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra, and you can check him out on Spotify, Pandora, and the internet at large. Thanks, Sean. And don't forget to check out JustInc.com and use promo code FATBABY to get free shipping on the cool shit we make. That's it for this episode, amigos. Until next time, be nice to the interns and go make good 